Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Hi, this is Ryan. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Today we are going to talk about the 1996 Baz Luhrmann film Romeo and Juliet. My guest today is the creator of the Hard Worker 12 on Cars YouTube channel. Um, that's H-A-R-D-W-R-K-R-R-12 on Cars. He is also my former roommate. Uh, so welcome to the show, Diedrich Sini. Thank you very much, Ryan. Very happy to be here. So I didn't know you before we, you lived here. No, we met on Craigslist, of all things. But I remember when you, you quote, interviewed, unquote, to live here, uh, we ended up talking about music. Correct. And um, two of the groups that I remember us talking about, um, one of them was Atmosphere. Yes. And the second one, one was, the second one I believe, was Radiohead. Yes, of course. Um, so I wouldn't say that's a hundred percent of the reason why I selected you to <laughs> to live here, or, I'd, but it was it was good to know that we had something in common. It didn't hurt either of our causes, I don't think. Um, so today we are talking about the 1996 version of Romeo and Juliet. Um, So why did you select the movie today? So I selected this movie, obviously, uh, Soundtrack Your Life is a podcast about soundtracks, and the uh, 1996 Romeo and Juliet has a fantastic soundtrack. Um, A lot of my favorite bands, and especially the bands that I was listening to at the time, are featured on the soundtrack. Uh, So if we're going to talk about a soundtrack, this is an excellent one to talk about. And I think that this is a film that did a pretty good job of of merging the music on the soundtrack with the film and the imagery of the film. And, you know, a lot of these songs are are very well featured in there. So uh, it's a great soundtrack. In my opinion, it's a great movie, and I'm happy to talk about it. So in 1996, both of us are in high school. Correct. Uh, I was entering my freshman year of high school. And I believe we graduated the same year, didn't we? 2000? Yeah. So, yeah, we were both the same age. So, and I was, at the time, my freshman year of high school, I was in Honors English. And, of course, in Honors English, you study William Shakespeare. And we actually studied the Shakespeare play Romeo and Juliet that year in Honors English class. And um, I didn't really get it. I, you know, the as a freshman in high school, not a very mature individual at that time. The words were not jumping off of the page to me. I remember one of the exercises we went through in class was we all... Everybody took turns, you know, reading parts of the play, and I, I'll be honest, I found it to be interminably boring. Uh, we did watch initially a different film version uh, of Romeo and Juliet, which I, I believe it was released in 1968, and I don't remember the exact details on it, but it's considered like a cl- the classic film version of Romeo and Juliet. But it was done as a period piece, you know, in sort of the classical style. And I didn't, you know, it was the same material that we had read and studied, and I didn't really connect with that either. And then the Boz Luhrmann film was released, and actually the first time I saw it, was in that honors English class because once it had come out on VHS tape, because that was the 96-97 school year, so it was probably later on in the school year, uh, once it had come out on VHS, 
my honors English teacher had gotten a copy of it and she brought it in and she played it for the class and I loved it. I loved the film, you know, it, for a film being made in 1996, you have to keep the time frame in mind. It was presented in an extremely modern way. Everything was kind of updated as a, you know, with 20th century sort of images and technology, but still using the original text of the Shakespeare classic play, Romeo and Juliet. And of course, one of the things that I really loved about the film was the soundtrack, because a lot of my favorite bands at the time were on the soundtrack. I mean, I look through the list, you know, Garbage, Number One Crush. I was a fan of Everclear back then. Of course, you have uh, Radiohead with Talk Show Host on the soundtrack. Uh, the Whatever, I Had a Dream Song by the Butthole Surfers. That's actually my favorite Butthole Surfers song. And, you know, up and down, I think it's a really solid soundtrack. And that was one of the things that drew me into the film. And the net result of that was, as I moved forward academically, going into Honors English my sophomore year and then AP English my junior year, um, of course, you continue studying William Shakespeare and other classic playwrights. So one of the things that the 1996 Boz Lerman film, and also by extension its soundtrack, really, really gave me was... Uh, a better appreciation and it kind of opened my eyes to the brilliance because William Shakespeare is a brilliant playwright. I just didn't get it at that young age. And this really helped me get that and understand it and, um, you know, be able to be a little bit more open-minded when, you know, further Shakespeare studies came up or, you know, different pieces of classic literature. I, I had a little bit of an easier time with it because this film and by extension, it's soundtrack translated all of that into something that a you know 14 or 15 year old kid could understand in 1996 when it came out it's funny because my english teachers all hated the film they all basically like without without prompting were would tell us you know if you're going to do a book report on romeo and juliet do not reference the movie. Do not talk about the movie. Do not just watch the movie and turn that in as the book report. Like, they were furious at my high school about this movie. That's funny. Well, and I think a lot of the older critics maybe didn't get it, and maybe a lot of older fans of, you know, William Shakespeare's work or the, or the Romeo and Juliet play. My English teacher that year was Mrs. Blaney, and Mrs. Blaney was really, really cool. And um, as I recall, we had already kind of completed that, you know, um, chapter study, you know, we, we were already done with Romeo and Juliet and she brought the movie in anyway and showed it to us one day. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was, it was a cool thing to see. And I remember everybody, you know, the class, a whole bunch of freshmen in high school, we all really liked it, you know, but yeah, I think that maybe older people just wouldn't get it. They're pulling out, you know, hand me my long sword hoe and it's a you know an ar-15 rifle that says long sword on it i mean i can see how somebody who you know a teacher might not like that but mrs blaney was uh very enlightened and she was in touch with the youth so i'm grateful to have had her as a teacher i feel like it's one of those films that in high school like everybody kind of wanted to see it everybody kind of liked it once i saw it i really liked it because of my sort of um, initial aversion to the Shakespeare material. I wasn't that excited to see it, although Claire Danes was in it. And she, you know, most people, I think, of that era that were our age, uh, which we've already established here for the listening audience, I think most of us were watching MTV at that point 
in in one way or another. And she had been Claire Danes had been in that my so called life show. So I I knew her and I liked her as an actress. And I actually right after I saw the film, I really liked uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as well. I thought he did a great job in it, but it was, you know, it was a vibrant cast. It, the main characters were played by young people, which makes sense because they are young people in the film. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if people of our age probably would have been excited to see it and would have liked it if they saw it. For the most part, I'm sure there's the occasional hater here or there. And it was the beginning of Boz Luhrmann just infiltrating our lives for like the next five or six years yeah um because he followed up romeo and juliet with moulin rouge correct and then in between he had the everybody everybody's free to wear sunscreen song which i never really liked but it was played at commencements across the country yeah which i've i actually i was doing a little bit of research for this podcast i somehow that song missed me i never heard that song and i only knew it because i was reading the wikipedia article on the podcast so i could semi sound like i knew what i was talking about here and i saw like parody to everybody's free to wear sunscreen and so tell me a little more about this because i read this song title and i literally thought it was a public service announcement type of thing to tell people to wear sunblock so they don't get skin cancer this is not what it was no, so it's um, it's like a spoken word piece over music. Okay. I don't even think it's Boz Luhrmann. Maybe it is him. Okay. It, it's a it's a spoken word piece over music. It's over Everybody's Free, which is on the soundtrack. Everybody's Free to Feel Good. Um, so I guess Boz Luhrmann made this album that had, you know, very famous parts of um, the scores from the past couple of films he did, Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet. Right. And then... To create a single, he did the spoken word piece over Everybody's Free. And um, I think it starts with, like, welcome class of whatever. And so a lot of people used it for commencement because it's just a lot of, like, wisdom, I guess. I, I haven't heard the song in, like, 20-plus years. But it was it's basically, like, a very inspirational sort of spoken word piece. So where does the sunscreen part come in? Does he actually say anything about sunscreen in there? Or was he planning on it getting played at so many commencements and so many commencements are held outdoors in June that he was... Yeah, I don't remember exactly why it's about sunscreen. He does mention, you know, everybody's free to wear sunscreen in the song. Oh. Um, I do know that he does say that specifically. Um, I I remember the parody that Chris Rock made of it a lot more, and that is No Sex in the Champagne Room. You're telling me No Sex in the Champagne Room by Chris Rock is a parody of Everybody's Free to Wear Sunscreen by Boz Luhrmann? Yes. Wow. Because, of course, I know that song. <laughs> Who is in the, if I consult my notes, the original artist was Quindon Tarver. So, well, there is no sex in the champagne room. Chris Rock is right about that, no matter what a stripper tells you. I'm assuming Boz Lerman didn't mention strippers in the original. I think that's where the, like, every, everybody's wear to free sunscreen line would come in in the original song. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you learn something new every day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so everybody's free is originally from the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack and then kind of remixed and remade for everyone. Everybody's free to wear sunscreen. Yes. As you all are. 
a song that was remixed that's on the soundtrack is Number One Crush by Garbage. That's a remix. Yeah, so it's a B-side from 95, which would be the self-titled Garbage album. Correct. And then Nellie Hooper, who um, was one of the people who put together the score for um, Romeo and Juliet, she remixed it. I think there's a Madonna sample somewhere buried in it. I have listened to the song Number One Crush a million times. I've never heard... Which part's the Madonna part? Where the kind of breathy... Huh? Uh, at the beginning, that part of it? Uh, that's what I would guess is the Madonna part. That's wild. I did not know that. Shirley Manson and Madonna on one track. That's a that's a hidden gem right there. Very mid-90s. Very mid-90s, yes. Um, and they were both peaking, sort of. Yeah, and Garbage's label, Elmo Records, didn't want to released the song on the soundtrack because the soundtrack was on Capitol Records. Okay. Even though Garbage's manager brought the song to 20th Century Fox saying, hey, this song might be good for this Romeo and Juliet adaptation that you guys are doing. And if I remember right, Almo Records, they were hooked up with Geffen, weren't they? Yeah. So it was sort of like a inter-industry record company beef going on there. Geffen didn't want to play with... With Capital. Capital. Uh, which is why there was no official single of Number One Crush. And back in 96, if you wanted to chart on the Billboard Top 100, you needed to have like a physical single. Interesting. So Number One Crush never had a chart, never charted because Almo Records didn't want Capital to release a physical single. Or that's something that's like that. very strange because you would think that somehow, and I don't know all the machinations of the record industry circa 1996, but wouldn't Almo Records be entitled to some kind of royalties if one of their artists charted or it would help their artists potentially sell more albums if people had never heard Garbage before and they like that song and they go buy version 2.0 or something? I didn't see it that way. Maybe they couldn't agree on the percentage of royalties. There we go. That's probably you know that sounds more likely. Especially since Nelly Hooper like did a remix of it. Like how you know. Oh yeah. I, I you know I don't want to dive too too deep into the music business, but that was, um, I guess a, a little drama. A little behind with, the scenes. A little behind the scenes with putting together the soundtrack. Interesting. Um, but you know it was a hit from. It was a hit from the soundtrack, even though it technically didn't chart. Yeah, I remember hearing that song on the radio. Um, I didn't realize it was the third single released from the soundtrack. It was the third single released. So which... It's the first song on the CD. What What was the first single? Love Fool? No. Um, I think Love Fool is actually the fourth. Oh, that's funny. Um, the first single was either the Desiree song or... Let me see. Young Hearts Run Free was the first single, and then Kissing You, um, mm. the Desiree song, was the second single. And Kissing You was kind of the main theme. It was like the love theme of the film. Yeah. Yeah, because that was what played when they first saw each other, and then the rest of it plays when Romeo sneaks back into Juliet's courtyard and makes out with her that night. Right. So number one crush is the third single. Love Fool is the fourth single. Yeah. That's wild because, 
I mean, if, if you had to pick a song that was, you know, the biggest hit, standalone hit on its own on that album, I would think it would be Love Fool. Yeah, I think that would probably be the one song that everyone remembers. Well, and again, MTV-ish generation, that video was all, oh, I mean, they played that video every 30 minutes on MTV back then. And that was... That I think I probably saw the music video before I saw the film, you know, and it was just the you know real bright, saturated colors and you know very very memorable video. I was not a big fan of the song. Subsequently, there's other work by the Cardigans that I like a lot more, but I think that may have been the first song I ever heard by the Cardigans, and I didn't really like it all that much. It was just a little too uh, bubbly for my taste at that time. Yeah, I agree with that. Didn't yeah. like the song, liked some of their later work where they got a little darker. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was, it was everywhere. Like, I remember the Love Fool video. I don't remember the number one crush video. I don't either, to be honest with you. And then I don't even really remember if there was a video for for um, Kissing You or for Young Hearts Run Free. Um, I, if there was, they didn't play it that much. As someone who was listening mostly to alternative rock at the time, like... I wasn't checking what was on the pop radio station, so I'm not sure how big these songs got because they weren't alternative songs. Yeah. That's uh I would probably fall in the same boat with you. I do I do seem to recall hearing number one crush on the radio though. Yeah, I remember it on the radio. I don't remember a video. Yeah. Though I know they made one, I think. You know, I I don't know if it's their peak, but you know, this is in their heyday, right? Pretty this close is, to it. Yeah. I mean they're the first album and the second album that they did, and and this was, I would say you could definitely say this was within their heyday, or if not their peak, for sure. And I would say that about a lot of the bands on this, um, on the soundtrack, Everclear, right? They that, had just done Sparkle and Fade, so they had just kind of broken into the mainstream. Right. Um, they they had a couple more albums in them where they were relevant, but right. you know, this is a good time in their career. Um, they the were, butthole surfers. This is the only time they ever got played on the radio. Yeah. Well, it was. Well, they had they were they had that one hit, uh, Pepper. I believe the song was called, and and I think this soundtrack came out like maybe a year after Pepper, and that was their only thing that ever really got airplay ever. So yeah, they were definitely at the peak of their career. Yeah, at least commercially. Commercially, sure. Critically, I'm sure people would argue that a different way, but commercially, definitely they were. And and they had been around. I think the Butthole Surfers had been around since like 1981. Yeah, they'd been around a long time. And then, as we mentioned before, the Cardigans. This is their, you know, I. This was the Cardigans' biggest hit. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You know, they they've had a couple other hits, but this was definitely their biggest hit. And even Desiree, right? Like she had that "I Want to Be" song. Yeah, from this a couple is, years before. Right. Um, a lot of the other artists, I think this is probably as as much exposure as some of these other artists have ever, ever got. Well, I remember getting my hands on a copy of the soundtrack a couple of uh, a couple of years after it came out, and kind of studying, you know, the track list on the back of the CD. And it was like, who are these people? You know, because I'll just run down the track list. Number one, number one, Crushed by Garbage. We've gone over. Number two, Local God by Everclear. Number three, Angel by Gavin Friday. I'm sure Gavin Friday has other work. I've never heard of any of it. 
Uh, number four, Pretty Piece of Flesh by a band called One Inch Punch. Same story, never heard of them before or after. Kissing You by Desiree, Desiree, however you say her name. Uh, track six, Whatever I Had a Dream by the Butthole Surfers. Track seven is Love Fool. Track eight is Young Hearts Run Free, and that's Kim Mazel. Um, track nine, Everybody's Free to Feel Good by Quindon Tarver. Track 10, To You I Bestow by Mundy. I mean, I'm sure people know who Mundy is, but I'm not one of those people. Uh, track 11, Talk Show Host by Radiohead. We will get into that. Uh, track four or track 12, excuse me, Little Star by Steena Nordenstam. Never heard of her. Track 13, the You and Me song by the Wanna Dies. Now, I remember I remember reading down this list and thinking, I don't know who that I don't know who One Inch Punch is. I've never heard of that. But when I got to the Wanna Dies, one word, W-A-N-N-A-D-I-E-S, I thought, well, that's made up. That has to be like a fake band or just a, a group of musicians that came together to do one song for this soundtrack and they don't that that's not a real band name that was my thought at the time and to be quite honest with you i'm just giving you that off the top of my head because i never did any actual research to find out were the wanted eyes actually a real band or was it just a one-off side project for the romeo plus juliet soundtrack but i do remember having that thought when i saw that name apparently they're a swedish band ah perhaps friends with the cardigans perhaps yeah um but you know Definitely one of those bands that they probably tried to break in the U.S. that, you know, just didn't take. Right. Um, I probably feel that way about Mundy as well. They're probably a band that some labels trying to push to get exposure in the States didn't work. Didn't quite work out. Um, But one of the bands that wanted more exposure in the States was Radiohead. And um, I think every Radiohead fan knows the story of the end credit song. I think I do. So you, you're you probably more well-versed and well-researched in this than I am, but the story that I heard, or as I understand it, was, of course, they wrote exit music for a film uh, for the soundtrack to Romeo and Juliet, and that was kind of based on it, but they liked the song so much, and it was you know so important to them as artists or whatever, that they said, okay, you can use it in the movie, but you can't put it on the soundtrack. We'll give you this other song talk show host to put on the soundtrack have fun with that and then of course exit music for a film ends up on okay computer yeah so boz lurman commissioned radiohead to write a song for the movie so he sent the last 30 minutes of the film okay so exit music from exit music for a film is based off of the band watching the last 30 minutes of romeo and juliet which is a pretty dark 30 minutes it's a dark song yeah yeah, it is. Um, they wrote the song, and they wanted to keep it for themselves, so they let the movie use it over the end credits, but then they didn't let them release it. I believe it was maybe the second song they had finished for OK Computer. Interesting. Um, so I think they did Lucky for a benefit compilation. And yeah, then I think that's did, correct. And then they did OK. Then they did Exit Music, and I think they were having a little bit of trouble trying to like get these songs done. Right. So when they were like, oh, this this would fit on the album, like we can't give it up because we're having trouble getting the album together. Interesting. But yeah, they also have Talk Show Host, which is a B-side from the Benz, uh, even though it kind of doesn't sound like anything from the Benz. 
Not really. Yeah, talk show host, you know, if you really want to study Radiohead's discography or progression as a band, because they were definitely changing rapidly, you know, Pablo Honey in 93, the Benz in 95, OK Computer in 97. And it, it is, talk show host is actually one of my favorite Radiohead songs, but it is kind of an, you can see where they were coming from as far as the influence from the Benz, but also in a way where they were going into the OK Computer era. So, yeah, but it somehow does sound more it sounds more like the bends to me than okay computer but i see what you're saying that it you know it wouldn't have been a perfect fit on that album either but that is one of my favorite radiohead songs and it's used brilliantly in the film because when romeo's introduced that's the song that's playing you know and and you see leonardo dicaprio on the on the suit in the suit on the beach looking sort of disheveled and depressed and you know, and at the time he's in love with Rosaline and all the rest of it. But I, I, that was one of the scenes in the film that really, you know, the first time I watched it, it was like, oh my God, you know, and Radiohead's playing. And so it used very effectively in, in the film, even though it was not originally written for the film. Um, so as far as songs that are written for the film, it sounds like the Butthole Surfer song is definitely written for the movie. There's some... Um, yeah, there's some reference to Romeo and Juliet in there. And then I believe they're, they have some work done on the second volume of the soundtrack, which is more score-oriented. So it seems like they were at least given some footage of the film to watch as well. Probably so, yes. The Everclear song has some Romeo references. Um, I haven't been able to find whether it was written for the movie or not. It sounds like it could have been. Right. Um, but it also kind of sounds like it could be a sparkle and fade B-side. Yeah, it's very representative of their work at the time. But well, I got to say, one of my favorite songs off of the soundtrack, and there was more than one occasion, uh, me and my uh, boys, if you will, driving around town with the with the Romeo and Juliet CD and the CD player listening to Local God while we drove around you know, our hometown where we grew up. So, um, yeah, but I agree. It's, you know... That's a that's an Everclear song. I mean, their style's relatively distinct, and um, it's it's a very good example of an Everclear song, but an Everclear song nonetheless. Yeah, I was reading. I was trying to, you know, so I'm researching Everclear to see whether this song was written for the soundtrack. Um, I was a big fan of theirs back in like the '95 to 2000 era of the band. Right. Um, somehow I stumbled upon. Um, I guess there was some controversy about whether they were ripping off Nirvana. As far as musical style? Yeah, because, you know, there's a little bit of, at least in the uh, Sparkle and Fade era, there's definitely some grunge influence. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I stumbled upon an article where, like, Dave Grohl says Everclear not ripping off Nirvana, says Worst Offender is Bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he might be right, but you know, it's for any band, any kind of alternative rock band that was coming out in the mid '90s. You know, Nevermind, the Nevermind album was such a huge influence on everybody that I think if you were in a rock and roll band at that point, you were going to have some Nirvana influence, regardless whether you tried to or not. You know, it was just, you know, that was Nirvana was really, especially for 
for the rock bands, that just kind of cast a shadow over the whole entire decade. So, and it's funny because I listened to a lot of Nirvana, of course, when I was young, and I never, I never thought of Everclear as ripping them off. I mean, I can definitely see similarities, but a lot of bands, a lot of bands had a lot of similarities to Nirvana at that time. So that's kind of interesting that people were accusing them of that because you could point that stick at two dozen bands if you want to go through, you know, the Tower Records 1995 CD catalog. I'm sure. Yeah, and with mid to late 90s Everclear, I actually feel like they line up pretty well with, me, with um, the Foo Fighters of that era. Yeah, I would say probably a little closer to that than Nirvana. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because I think they're more of like a power pop band that has like a little bit of grunge, a little bit of pop punk in them. Yeah. And I feel like that's how Dave Grohl's music was around that time as well. Yeah, Everclear somehow, I don't know if this is a good term to describe music, but the music was kind of a little bit more bright. It was brighter than Nirvana's music and you know power pop maybe is another way to put it but yeah I, I personally I never thought that uh, Everclear was ripping off Nirvana at least not any more or less than anybody else was at the time yeah I think probably them being a three piece was part of the reason people were holding against them no yeah, that's not their but, fault yeah but you know um, but I just thought that was interesting um, thinking back on them because they they went f- much further into pop as as it as, went, as, as time went on, for time them. went on, yeah. You know, so much for the Afterglow, which has some of their biggest hits. That's very much a pop album. Yeah. Um, you know, all the all the grunge that was on Sparkle and Fade was pretty much stripped away on that album. Right. And you know, if you really wanted to cast a critical eye on them, because so much for the Afterglow was released a little bit later, and by the late '90s, the pop, you know, pop music was becoming more popular. So. Who's to say if that was just a natural evolution of their band or, you know, if they were in a way trend chasing. I haven't put that much thought into it, but it's a it's a possibility. But definitely by, you know, 1999, the music scene looked a whole heck of a lot different than it did, you know, in November of 91 when uh, Nevermind first came out. That's for sure. Right. So even though, you know, maybe Radiohead is the only band that is still standing from the soundtrack back in 1996 this was this this soundtrack sold four million copies yeah this is like you know speaking of someone who as i previously stated was a freshman in high school uh when this film and subsequently the soundtrack came out yeah this is like a greatest hits album of 1996 in a way you know as far as the bands go it's almost like um one of those now that's what I call hits or whatever. In in a way, it's a very well curated version of that, but it comes from one film, which is, you know, what a a, a great soundtrack maybe should do if it's not an original score. Although it is worth mentioning that there is a second soundtrack that contains the original score, and that's excellent as well. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with that one. It's so I've I have both of them. The second soundtrack, there's kind of a couple of remixed versions of um, some of the the songs that are on, you know, what I would call the primary soundtrack. That's the one we've been discussing here. But um, the, there's a track called Overona, which is the the very sort of operatic opening at the very opening of the movie um, when the the intro is read by essentially a newscaster on film, and then this incredible, exciting music plays. So that track is called O Verona, and it's been used in several places, including uh, an entrance for the judges on the X Factor television show in the UK. 
It was used by Triple H, the wrestler, for his entrance at WrestleMania 30, and it was sampled by the band Evanescence um, for one of their lesser-known songs, apparently. So, But, uh, yeah, the second soundtrack's excellent as well. If you're into more score work, you know, because the... And like I said, some of it's kind of remixed sort of score versions of of the the songs on the primary soundtrack but yeah it's it's a good soundtrack and there's also dialogue in there and and quite frankly in my opinion the actors pretty much up and down the cast did a fantastic job with the material in this film so you get dialogue from some of the different actors and and uh, it's pretty powerful stuff it's a good soundtrack basically about 10 years ago we saw we went to go see garbage it was about eight years ago it was 20 it was the end of 2012 Okay, so about eight years ago, we go to see Garbage with our friend Jessica. Correct. And we went to go see them at an Indian casino. Was it San Manuel Indian Bingo and Casinos, the technical name of the location? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. San Manuel Indian Casino. I think the bingo's in the title. I could be incorrect on that. I, I apologize. The San Manuel Indian and Bingo Casino. Yeah. Um, and I remember we drove up there together and, um, it seemed, I believe none of us wanted to see the opening act because the opening act was Imagine Dragons and, uh, we didn't have any Imagine Dragons fans in the group that evening. Yeah. And I believe, and, and this is pretty early in the Imagine Dragons career. Correct. I believe. Yeah. I think they only had that one song with the pianos. That was on the radio. I had heard them on the radio. They they were kind of just starting to break, um, so I definitely had heard them on the radio. But you know, just to put it in context for the audience, they were opening for Garbage in 2012 in a converted bingo room in an Indian casino near Riverside, California. So their career had not reached the heights that I believe it eventually reached. But yeah, they were. They were starting out in life. Let's put it this way. Um, so we decided to gamble instead of watching them. Correct. And the specific memory that I have, and I think it was you, one of us, because th- that was one of the weirdest concerts I've ever seen just because of the the venue. Picture a giant bingo hall with sort of a stage set up kind of on one end of it completely flat floor not raised seating like you would normally see in you know a venue where a concert or a movie theater might show so completely flat floor and just folding chairs set up and that was the venue for the concert and we get there and um, none of us were really all that excited about seeing imagine dragons as the opening act so we were not quite punctual but imagine dragons was on stage when we arrived and i believe it was you ryan just opened the door to the bingo hall and kind of looked in and, and you could hear the music coming out, of course, more when you open the door. And you just kind of let the door close and just said, nope. And we all went <laughs> over to the slot machines and wasted 45 minutes and probably $25 in my case. So, yeah, that yeah. was – we didn't – didn't never saw Imagine Dragons. We could have seen them when they were just young pups, dude. <laughs> uh, well, I gambled my way to covering my – my my ticket, so I I was happy. That's right, you made money. I lost money, but it was worth. However much money I lost, it was worth it not to have to watch Imagine Dragons. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> Nothing's free in this life, so that was the price I paid. Oh, fair enough. 
I remember we went in after they were done and there were like programs on the chairs. Oh, that's right. That was weird. And it had like, didn't it have like sort of descriptions, almost like little mini press releases about like describing the band, the two bands, right? Were both of them in there? They both of them, both of uh, both artists had like a band bio in the program. Right. And I I believe it was just like a sheet of paper with like one bio on one side and the other bio on the other side. It wasn't like a like a program you would like a it's not like a playbill you would get it, on Broadway. They didn't spend a whole lot of money on printing, let's put it this way. Um but I remember the Imagine Dragons bio talked about how they were from Vegas and how they basically came up in the scene, you know, having to fight for the attention against, you know, magicians and and circus acts when in actuality it's like basically you guys needed to show that you were like not the killers. Yeah, you needed to overcome Brandon Flowers. Yeah. I, who was already on tour by the time he started. So they're from Vegas? They say they're from Vegas. I've heard that they all met at BYU. So the reason why I say that, obviously I don't know very much about Imagine Dragons, so I'm ignorant as to their origin. But Honest, I'm, because of that show, I always thought they were Scottish. Because Shirley Manson, who's the lead singer of Garbage, of course is Scottish. And we got in there kind of during the intermission. So we were there to see the whole show for Garbage. And I, I believe they played their first song or first couple of songs, whatever. And then, of course, you know, they do the professional classy thing. And Shirley Manson acknowledges the opening act. And she said something like... In Scotland, we have a word, bong harach or something, what, some crazy Scottish word, and that means, like, powerful. They're a powerful band, and for some reason, be just because of that, I always figured that they were Scottish. So you're telling me that Imagine Dragons is not a Scottish band? Yeah, they're not from Scotland. Oh. Because I read their bio. <laughs> well, you've done more than I, so I'll take your word for it. Yeah, they were talking about... Tigers and magicians and how they had to compete with them. And that's why they're such great entertainers now. Well, good for them. I'm happy for them. I mean, the the garbage bio wasn't much better. Like, it was definitely pulled from, like, the mid-90s where it was just full of, like, angsty attitude. We got three producers and a girl who can sing. It was It was full of attitude of, like, I don't know. Very, very Gen X-like. Yeah. In your face, like, because we're a rock band, so we have to be rude in our bio. Right, right, right. All I remember about the garbage set, like, they sounded fine. Yeah. Uh, But all I remember was Eric Avery from Jane's Addiction was playing bass with them. And I think I only knew that because Jessica told me, like, oh, Eric Avery's on tour with them with this tour. Sounds like something Jessica would know. I was like, oh, good for him. Um like, I don't remember too much. I, like, I remember the, the chairs we were in. I remember the programs. I remember gambling. I remember garbage being good. I don't remember, like, a single song they played. I, like, I'm pretty sure they played it. It's only happy. I'm only happy when it rains at the end of the show because that's their big hit. Right. Um, they, but, uh, they, they did a good job. They had a new album out at that time, which was, I believe it was called Not Your Kind of People which was not the greatest album they ever did, if I'm honest. And I like Garbage, but I didn't think that album was all that good. And they did play some songs on it, but they did a good job of playing the hits, too. You know, and they and they played, like, they played You Look So Fine, which was, I don't 
think that was a single, but that was like one of my favorite garbage songs from back in the day. So, uh, and they played number one crush. I remember that. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was a good show. It wasn't the greatest show I ever heard. What I remember about it is everybody stood up with the audience all stood up throughout the show and, um, and the show went pretty well. And at the end, Shirley Manson actually thanked us all. Like, thank you all for standing up and giving us energy because, and she basically, she, she literally said like, when we walked in here tonight, we, it was looking kind of weird and we didn't know what to think, but you guys really made it a great show for us. So thank you. And I, I, I sort of felt seen in a way that she said that to us because it's like, oh, thank God. I'm not the only one who thinks this is really damn weird, you know, because <laughs> I've been to a few concerts in my day and I'm sure obviously Shirley Manson has played a ton of concerts in her day. And yeah, that was I've never before since seen a venue quite like that. But so she did thank us for being a good audience and they were a good band live. It was an enjoyable show. Uh, what I remember most during the show was there were a couple guys behind us. And I remember them talking to Jessica, and they were basically asking her, like, those two guys are a couple, right? Like, those two guys are together. About who? Me and you? About about you and I, yeah. Uh, which I think <laughs> Wait, is funny, because we were with Jessica, but they were, like, clearly, like, they're together, and she's just with them. Oh, um, I think I remember, if I remember this correctly, and I'm a little vague, did they not ask Jessica if she was our fag hag? Was that the terminology that was used? Um, I believe that was said, and I believe they referred to me as your twink. <laughs> <laughs> I that's so funny. I hadn't somehow that memory didn't didn't click for me. Interesting. I don't know if you're really my type, but uh, that's very flattering, I suppose. But I think after hearing that conversation, like I think a bunch of things started connect to, started to like connect like the dots for me with garbage. Like they have you know off their first album, one of their first singles was the song "Queer." Correct. Um. So. I guess it makes sense. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say that's solely the reason why do, do they, they are have, popular with the LGBTQ community. But do they? have a following in the lgbtq community um i believe so i think jessica told me afterwards like oh yeah like they've got a pretty big following oh. with the lgbtq community um and then i was like oh yeah like they have that song queer and like in the mid 90s it was probably like pretty bold of them to just have a song called queer yeah um but i was like oh okay like that makes sense because i guess the guys so the guys that were asking jessica if she was our hag and stuff they were clearly a, a gay couple. Right. Um, so it wasn't like they were these homophobes who were like, we're looking for a fight or anything. They were. No, no, no. That certainly wasn't the vibe. Yeah. It was. Yeah. That's interesting as I, I never really knew or thought of garbage um, to be a band that specifically had that sort of, you know, a large fan base of uh, in that community. But yeah, if they do, you know, the song queer or whatever, it's great music. People just like it, I suppose. So good for them. Well, thank you, Diedrich, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so if you are looking for, if you want to just geek out on cars, go to Diedrich's YouTube channel, Hardworker12, H-A-R-D-W-R-K-R-R-12. Um, or you could look up Hardworker12 on cars when you're on YouTube. Um, 
Diedrich's got a bunch of stuff up there. Even even his uh, visit to a Subaru dealership in Ukraine, that's even on there. Yep. So check that out. Um, thank you again, Diedrich, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.